good morning and welcome to another FS Club webinar. And it's my delight to have with us Dr. Victoria Hearth. And Victoria is going to be leading us through a discussion today on what does it really mean to be a purpose-driven company. Uh, Victoria did present as well to FS Club uh, earlier this year. And that was another uh, quite exciting topic as, as she covered ISO 37000. But today we're going to go uh, slightly more abstract, but I think a very, very deep an important subject. Well, what does it mean to be purpose-driven? In the green room, as we like to term uh, the waiting area before we start these things, we have uh, discussed, is it purpose-driven uh, just to make money for the community of people who work for you or just for the family who owns the firm? Uh, and yet there's that old allegorical tale of the sweeper at NASA who, when asked why was he so happy sweeping the corridors, he said, it's because I'm helping to put a man on the moon. So we have these sorts of great extremes here, and we're going to be covering that today. Now, you know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it is my privilege to introduce these because I am only able to do so thanks to the tolerance of our sponsors who are listed here before you. And our various sponsors do allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. Uh, but of course, there's more than just technology, economics, and finance. These organizations are made of people, and people are driven by purpose. And I hope today, and I, I think with Victoria's assistance, we'll get to some of the core assumptions uh, behind all of this. Now, the, to outline the agenda, despite the distances involved, which is Victoria's up in Cambridge, and I'm down here in London, and you are wherever you are in the world, uh, through the wonders of technology, uh, we should be able to deliver this to you in approximately 45 minutes. Uh, I'll get out of the way quickly in a minute. Victoria's gonna chat for about 20 minutes and then we'll have 20 minutes of Q&A. Now, just to uh, allay three quick things. Yes, the slides are available. There's a copious number of slides, so uh, Victoria needn't say you can see them later and they're already posted in the chat room. Secondly, yes, this is being recorded and will go up in approximately two working days, so early this weekend, I hope. Uh, and finally, how do you participate in the Q&A? Very simple. Uh, type in your questions here on the GoTo Q&A uh, chat facility. Please don't text me, email me, WhatsApp me, because I'm here with you, and I will feed those questions and, and comments and observations into a discussion with Victoria. Now, just to get the discussion going, we had two little poll questions to test you, kind of test the temperature of the audience, should I say. So the first question here is, firms I know are increasingly looking to become purpose-driven. Do you agree strongly, somewhat disagree, even with two S's, uh, or do you strongly disagree? Uh, answers on, on a buzzer, please. Victoria, as you've done this before, you can imagine three quarters of the, of the audience have already voted. So we'll close that one and get an idea of what's going on. And it's pretty clear here that two thirds of the audience pretty much uh, agree. Uh, and in fact, if you add 62 and 19 together, uh, you, you get a, a stonking majority strong, well, agreeing in total. Nobody strongly disagreeing. So we'll move on to the second poll. And this one is firms, uh, sorry, insuring firms who say that they are purpose-driven act in line with this is going to become an increasingly important governance and management agenda. Uh, and again, uh, do you agree uh, strongly somewhat or do you disagree strongly or somewhat and many of you will remember uh, that this was, a, in, in some ways, comparable to what, what happened as firms began strategic planning in the 80s and 90s, and that became a, an extremely important part of government. So is purpose going to be up there as well? 
And again, those results, while um, actually an overwhelmingly strongly agree that purpose-driven is going to be increasingly important. And so who better now to take us through that and how we can address it uh, than you, Victoria, and the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm just going to share my slides and you should be seeing them now. Yeah, do you see them? Looks good. Okay, great. And I'm actually in uh, Cyprus, Michael, so, uh, or on Cyprus, so. Uh, the other sea, the other sea, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, exactly, but uh, the, your point uh, is very well made about uh, technology once again bringing us all together, which is fantastic. So, um, good to be with you all. I'm really looking forward to your questions and reflections later. As Michael alluded to, um, I, one of the roles that I think that I can play in everything that's going on is through the luxury I've had over the last 20 odd years reflecting on business, governance, purpose, marketing, leadership, culture, what that means for how we can move towards a future that we all want um, means I, I hopefully will give the chance to give you a helicopter or a bird's eye perspective of kind of where we've come from, where we are and where we're going and where purpose sits in amongst that. So that does mean some level of abstraction because that's what happens when you get a bird's eye view. But hopefully um, I'll try and take my time enough that uh, the key points I'm making will make sense. And if I have to flick over slides, um, they're there for your reference later. Okay, so I'm gonna make four core points that the firm, and they may, may seem obvious, um, and in a way they are. Uh, the firm outcomes you get depend on the decisions that you make. The decisions you make depend on what organizational logic dominates. That there are three logics that explain um, how far firms are likely to affect unsustainability and therefore are able to respond to unsustainability. And that purpose is the logic that is fully aligned with a sustainable future and a well-being economy. And then three deeper points that I'm gonna make about why the future is purpose. And I say all command and control, because I truly believe that if we don't get to grips with purpose, that we will be uh, asking for, we will be happy to have a command and control system of people making decisions for us. If we don't grasp this opportunity to reform capitalism and by that I mean capitalism as a market-based system where we rely on the market to allocate resources rather than through a command and control system. So I think we have a window now, I think it's a small window, um, but this is why uh, I think that the future is, is purpose. Because purpose is the practical operational answer to the biggest problem that we have ever faced on planet Earth, our existential threat to our collective long-term well-being, and that is the definition of unsustainability. Uh, unless we solve the problem, purpose will just keep attracting more and more energy because purpose is the answer to a problem, and that problem being fundamental unsustainability, and that's why it hasn't gone away, and I don't think it will. Uh, purpose also resolves the tension and the pain that is at the heart of business while it remains misaligned with the future that we want. And that pain and tension is only going to get worse because the, 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 the drivers of that tension are in play and, and, and they're locked in for the next you know, decade, 20 years, regardless in a way of what we do now. We can, uh, we can make it worse, of course, but those tensions 
uh, are going to remain. And the purpose is therefore the, in my view, in my assessment, the only business logic that truly unleashes the innovation of an enterprise to solve our issues and create the positive world we want. So part of the fundamental thing about purpose is that it takes us back to re remembering what the point of an organization is, what the point of an economy is, and getting back to those first principles. And that's maybe one of the key overarching messages I'd like to leave us all with is that it can feel very chaotic and noisy and that noisiness and chaos is gonna get far worse, I think, before it gets better, especially if we don't move to purpose quickly. But that getting down to those first principles and remembering what they are will help us navigate that and in a way become futurists uh, that we might thought that we were, were impossible to be. Um, so as part of everything I'm saying there, really one of those key um, fundamentals is that if you want to go far and fast, you need to go deep. That's that sort of first principles, very basis. And I think that's where we are. And I'm just gonna give an example of why this really matters. Because for example, many people now who are sort of waking up to this dawning unsustainability and the pressures, they just see an ad hoc series of stuff going on around reporting and ESG. And to them, that feels like this is the immediate challenge. But, but actually what's going on is what's driving that. And it's driving more than ESG. ESG is just one response in the system to some fundamental mega trends that are going on, of which most of those core mega trends can be uh, brought down to that fundamental issue of unsustainability, i.e. at its root, the severe degradation of the social and environmental systems that underpin everything else. And I'm gonna go in uh, to detail a bit on that in a minute. And this is with the WEF 2020 uh, uh, megatrends uh, report. So the first proposition, going back to first principles, is that an economy is fundamentally about allocating scarce resources or abundant resources, just resources actually, in order to optimize well-being, welfare, flourishing, prosperity, utility. There are various ways and they are they overlap in different ways um, for society over the longer term. So that's the economy's fundamental function and organizations are the vehicle that society has decided is the best way to take resources and allocate them for the good of society as a whole. Um, so let's just focus a little bit on that word well-being, which was gonna come up a lot. Now we could call it anything and call it sausage. It really doesn't matter what we call it, but we're thinking the, the important point is that there is a fundamental way in which we can conceptualize the goal that we are all gunning for. And increasingly the term well-being is the one that's being leaned on as the umbrella that, you know, under which we can start to build accountability. Because if well-being is the outcome, then yes, I mean, that's the biggest philosophical question that we've ever faced and we need to keep discussing that and much much more than we have done uh, and by business um, but essentially that is the accountability goal uh, that's what I see everyone saying anyway so we can define that this is from uh, BS 8950 adapted within uh, PAS 808 which is the new British standard on purpose-driven organizations launched this week which I'm going to go into later as a positive state of being where current and future needs are met such that there is the capacity and opportunity to flourish and there are a whole range of sub points that make that clarification stronger there now again that's an ongoing consensus building process about what we mean 
Um, and a lot of that is going on at the well-being economy level. And what's helpful about thinking about it in this way, in terms of first principles of the economy, is that if we then look at the definition of sustainability, development that meets the needs, well-being, because needs are the key way in which well-being is met, of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs, then reworded, that is well-being, not just any old thing, uh, not for some people, for everyone, and not just now, but in the future, long-term well-being for all. So that means that the fundamental and ultimate goal of an economy is actually the same as the goal of sustainable development or sustainability. And therefore, that helps us to start to see that how we organize the economy is at the heart of the issues of unsustainability and therefore at the root of resolving it. And I think that's a conclusion most people have uh, come to intuitively, but we can start to unpick that in more detail and then understand why, therefore, purpose is the solution to that problem. So this is how we might characterize the business as usual system. So um, now this is a UK and U US export, our form, form of capitalism, not capitalism as a whole, but our form of it that has been exported very widely over the a large you know, number of decades, as we know. Um, and essentially what this does is say business within this economy, this way in which we take resources and allocate them, business has a very particular role to play. So it's not their ultimate ends of well-being for any one group, population or society. Its role, it, we've created a quite narrow box for business and said, you focus on capturing financial income from the market and usually distributing that to members or shareholders as well as creating jobs. If you do that and you do it in a certain way within a market, then you're doing your best role, your best moral contribution to society's well-being is that. Um, and that is because of the series of assumptions we have about the way that a market works and the way that well-being is created, which in a very short nutshell is that consumers, customers, i.e. citizens who then become consumers as they act in the marketplace, uh, are rational, are self-interested, and are the best judges of their own well-being. Uh, and therefore, as long as they have maximum choice uh, inf and information about that choice, then the only real constraint to them purchasing their well-being in the market is income, which is one of those core pillars as to why we've really financialized pretty much everything about life, because income becomes the route to well-being in these series of assumptions. Now, these are ungoverned assumptions. We've forgot to check whether or not those are working and we've forgotten to check whether or not they actually result in the outcome and therefore whether, you know, so these are, that's the first point of uh, the, uh, the um, lack of governance and why unsustainability is a governance failure. So the ultimate ends are, are out of reach because we say you need to read market demand and you need to respond to it and you need to do it in a competitive way so that your self-interest uh, as a business is not uh, overreached. And you do this within the rules of the game. But that means the ultimate ends are out of sight, and actually they're out of sight, no one's governing that. But also that the ultimate means, i.e. the basis on which these, this middle of the triangle, which has been focused in on this financial and manufactured capital, you know, that's what we measure, that's what we account for, that's what we govern, that's where our attention is and where our strategy making is. Um, what sits under that, these foundational means, we actually call in the PADS, uh, that the base environmental and social systems and the natural and human and social capital is off balance sheet. Uh, so we're not counting it, we're not governing it, we're not measuring it, we're not making strategy in relation to it. 
Um, and so we call this, this fundamental logic BAU CSR because that means that when unsustainability hits, in terms of pressure on the organization, the organization can respond to that to the extent that it poses a threat to that normally short-term financial income maximization. And if it doesn't pass that test and it doesn't pass the logic and the business case, it won't get through. So, and also if that pressure recedes, then the case for having that investment goes. And that's where you end up with like an ad hoc smorgasbord of activity that really doesn't around, you know, doing good, that really doesn't make sense unless you put it through that filter. Another reason an organization might start to act in relation to sustainability is because there are some individuals that think actually this is the right thing to do. But then you end up in the issue um, of the organization therefore creating parameters for its strategy making to maximize financial income that are, fall into that trap of the pet project because why this thing and not the other thing? And usually, uh, ultimately, it comes down to where the stakeholder pressure is. But if it is the values of a particular leader, the, the question then remains, well, why? Why that? You know, and why should you be taking away finance from your investors in order to invest in and create a parameter around a certain way of doing things that goes beyond the law? Because the law is the uh, is what should really uh, paradigmatically that's what creates the, the parameters for operating within that system. We of course know uh, over many years that these assumptions about how well-being is created, what I would call the well-being machine of the market, isn't doesn't work, isn't true. The idea of how humans behave that we've put into our econometric models is not true. And we know that the rules of the game are essentially subverted and have always been subverted. Um, and it creates a compliance culture, which makes it fundamentally difficult, if not impossible for organizations to respond to the current crisis we're in, where actually the expectations and what companies are getting sued for goes beyond the law. Um, so they're just not set up to deal with it. Um, so this is how the pressure of unsustainable, you know, well, just going back one second, if we have this system, it's not surprising at all that we end up in a system of unsustainability. Because the market, which takes up a bigger and bigger amount of what we do in the world, is essentially um, ungoverned for the ends or for the means. Uh, and so our long-term well-being potential being under threat is not a surprise. But this is how it's felt at the level of the organization. Uh, and as I said, the ability to respond uh, really comes down to what logic of decision making runs your organization, sits at the heart of it. And that depends on your worldview about business, its role in society and those market mechanisms. So I've covered CS, CSR, so I won't do that again because that's, that's, the, that's the mainstream. What we have are organizations that rather than just now responding to that stakeholder pressure, that pressure is getting so deep and so strong that they're starting to go, oh my gosh, maybe we need to actually look at the science or the things that are driving this stakeholder pressure in order to understand where it's coming from, what the reality for our stakeholders are, what the reality of the threats to our social, human and, and um, natural capital that we rely on are, and for the most enlightened, what's the state of play for these environmental and social systems that scientists are screaming at us are literally end game time. And so we get then what you might call the enlightened organization, enlightened shareholder value, enlightened self-value, whatever. Now, within this logic, regardless of stakeholder pressure, an organization can start to make decisions that are actually based on the science. And that means going beyond the rules of the game, taking a leadership position around, for example, SDGs, ESG. We can put all of these into this bottom of the triangle. 
because they're essentially the way of expressing the fundamental thresholds that we need to now start working within in order to repair and protect the basis on which we make any money or, or, or and eventually therefore any well-being for society as a whole. So that's the enlightened perspective. But the all of the assumptions about how the market works remain the same, which is why it is BAU ESV. And you'll have recognized, I'm sure, over the last decade or so, this focus on long-termism, long-term thinking, stakeholderism, stakeholder capitalism. It all comes from shifting. So nothing really changes when you move to this paradigm except that you move your financial income maximization to a longer term horizon. And you start to think of therefore about the survivability of a firm and those fundamental risks. Now that changes a lot about an organization. It changes, it will have to change lots about the business model, could fundamentally change organizations. Uh, and we are really only at the beginning of that journey. It's only really on climate change we've started to get there, but there are a whole heap of things that we are now scrambling to get control of. And I think we will drown in the bureaucracy of trying to work through that unless we move to a real leadership and innovation position. And that's where purpose comes in. Because purpose essentially is a paradigm shift. It's a break from business as usual because it rests on some fundamentally different assumptions about the role of business in society and how the, uh, and how the organization's um, role and response is. So you can see here from the enlightened view, yes, we're starting to bring that value back onto balance sheets and count it and work with it, create thresholds. Um, but ultimately, the ultimate ends are still off limit. We're still just hoping somehow that the market will be creating that and that the profit motive won't have been manipulating and constraining the innovation of a firm to be able to actually uh, achieve the goals of the economy and the goals of society. This is an example, by the way, of, uh, of, of, of bottom of the triangle. Let's take SDGs, let's turn them into thresholds, let's work within them. This is Future Fit Foundation. So, so then we move to purpose. Um, and a purpose-driven logic essentially is where the organization says, I will set my reason to exist against the ends of the economy, which are also the definition of sustainability and the meta-purpose of society as a whole, uh, i.e. long-term well-being for all people and planet. Um, and in doing that, say, say, and the market becomes one way in which we deliver that fundamental contribution to long-term well-being for all people and planet. Um, we have to, obviously, profits are still vitally critical for paying the bills, um, investing in the purpose, and meeting the expectations of all stakeholders, including shareholders, and as does protecting and enhancing the ultimate means. Additionally, and you can see along the sides here, wise and ethical method, it becomes also critical to, to meet the ends and, and protect the means in a way that is uh, using the best data, is innovative but prudent, uh, and aligned with society's ethical values. Now, to, to zero in more specifically on what we mean, therefore, by a purpose-driven organization, that's been something that, in my observations over the last 20 years, we've been trying to articulate. And in doing that, and because many firms have seen the value of purpose but don't really understand where it's coming from and what it's trying to do, we have a lot of noise and complication. But at the same time, we've had a lot of consensus building going on. Uh, and we've now reached an inflection point this week when we had the British Standard in Purpose-Driven Organisations, um, which really describes uh, the basis 
uh, of, of this. These are just, uh, and I'm, I'll go into that now, just a quick point to say that what's happening in purpose-driven organizations, a response to that over-financialization and all those assumptions at the organizational level is mirrored at the macroeconomic level, where we're moving away from saying GDP is a good proxy for well-being to saying actually well-being is the outcome. Let's measure that as the outcome and whether or not we're being successful. So it's a correction in that systemic governance failure happening at the macro level is mirrored by purpose at the micro level. Um, so I just, I'm going to go back to that, but I just want to say that this is the standard that really, because I know we're short on time, this is the standard that really grounds the specificity around purpose. Um, so if we imagine that top of the triangle um, and the organizational system, purpose then becomes, and, and this is, I think, a critical definition, and this can be applied actually at personal team, project, government, all levels, but at an organizational level. An organizational purpose is the organization's reason to exist that is an optimal strategic, strategic contribution to the long-term well-being of all people and planet. So it's not any old thing on the side, it's its reason to exist. It is not just any old thing that can contribute strategically to long-term well-being for all, but it's the optimal contribution. And it therefore drives all other strategy making across everything else. So um, resting here on uh, what that means in terms of where the uh, where the momentum is going, I found this particularly interesting. This is KPMG's 2020, uh, 2020 CEO survey, 1,300 CEOs. If we take the triangle, we can map the responses that were given and the questions that were asked really quite clearly against these paradigms. So in business as usual, 11% thought of CEOs thought the overall objective of their organization was to deliver economic returns to shareholders. We have 69% moving into the enlightened view that embedding purpose in everything we do in order to create long-term value. Now, value obviously means way more than financial value, but part of our paradigm is that we, I'm assuming they meant financial value there. And we have 21% where the overall objective is to advance public interests and improve society. So that tells us something very interesting. This is an older survey from uh, Ernst & Young showing how lots of managers and, and, and CEOs think that purpose is absolutely what they need to do, but in delivering it, it becomes really, really tough. So this is where PAS 808 and the Purpose uh, Driven Organization Standard comes in in creating an accountability frame and a guidance for implementation where we can start to get really serious about this and, and make clear to those who say purpose is a pet project of a, a manager, it isn't. It's a very clear accountability frame against sustainability. And of course, the other thing, and you alluded to this, Michael, is that purpose is purposeful. So it isn't just a point of doing things. It's not, you know, Hitler could be purpose-driven is what we come up with. But actually, when we look at the phenomenon that it is and we understand its roots in purposefulness, it's not, that's not the case. Um, because essentially, purposefulness, meaningfulness, the desire to lead a purposeful, meaningful life comes from the desire to serve the good of the others. That warm glow when we pick up a pencil from, some, from someone, it's a deep drive within humanity. And it's been taken out of the organizational system. Uh, and we've instead tried to make humans fit the model. But actually, as humans, this is our potential. And Viktor Frankl says this particularly well. And this is why you can't say, oh, I want to be purpose-driven so I can make more money. It doesn't work like that. 
Success, like happiness, cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And it does so only as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. So a purpose-driven organization move. I will stop there. Yeah, I, I was going to stop after this slide. Uh, this one last point is that it, an organization fundamentally moves from being self-focused, uh, self-interest, to other-interested uh, and very strategic. So I'll stop there, Michael. Well, actually, if you wanted to go on, just a little, I wasn't trying to derail you, but we we have run over time a bit, I know. and I'll just, yeah. just let people get some more questions in. But if there are a couple of points you wanted to make, make them now, and I'll, I'll hold. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you. I, yeah, I was keeping my eye on, the, and so sorry about that. I just wanted to, I'll, maybe I'll just very quickly show the other slides so people can go back and look at them so they make sense. Um, this is the egg diagram in the in PAS eight to eight, which is freely available now. Um, which explains the principles and behaviours, but it's, I think, the first standard, national standard, that starts with worldviews, because, of course, what sits behind principles is worldviews. So it does set out the very foundations of this perspective of an organisation that's purpose-driven. I also wanted to draw people's attention again to 37,000, which is um, 77 countries, 25 liaisons, and 164 countries voted finally for it as, as a perspective of governance of organisations that is normatively aligned to the path, uh, and that's it. So I'll stop there. Great. Well, actually, that was very helpful, Victoria, uh, principally because um, <laughs> uh, some of the questions there. In fact, I'll, I'll kick off with one. Um, Clive Bullen is curious about how this is stretching out around the world. We need all companies, countries, cultures uh, to accept and act on this idea of purposefulness, but we've got no control over them. Uh, what are the best ways to achieve global acceptance and action? And I think I'd tack on to that. You know, where does the paths go from being British to being global? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And uh, it was always on mind having been involved with ISO for, for a long time and also having observed. I mean, we're talking fundamentals here, really. In fact, someone came back to me and said uh, a 2000 year old Sanskrit starts very similarly to the opening of the paths. You know, uh, in many, many ways, we're rediscovering the roots of what it is to be human on this planet. And um, and so this is a global thing. This is this unites us very, very deeply, and, and we definitely need that in the state that we're in, which is a global challenge. So um, I think the paths will move to, to be the basis of of a reconsensus uh, process, uh, as in, is this what we feel globally? I think that's a very exciting prospect. And what I would say to people is, please get organized now you know essentially the launch of the of the of the standard is is the start of a two-year test and learn and i'd love that at the end of that process we're organized to so that we've got the key stakeholders in the room to bash that out at an international level globally because what often happens in these innovative spaces is by the end you know this probably michael as well by the end of the process you've got the stakeholders in the room you wanted at the beginning of the process so let's use this as an opportunity to to kick start that one final I don't know. You can carry to the next question. I was going to make a legislative point, but I'll go ahead. Later. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that to the question of barriers, one important thing about this PAS is in very clear and specific detail, it holds a mirror up to be able to ask the question, if this is the kind of organization we want, just like ISO 37000 does, but is this the kind of governance we want? Do we have the legislative and uh, regulatory environment to support this, or actually is it stopping it? Good. Um, now, you entitled this uh, presentation, what does it really mean to be a purpose-driven company? 
the PAS, of course, refers to purpose-driven organizations. Uh, I've got a few questions uh, here as well, but just an opener. Uh, did you see that as interchangeable, company and organizations? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I will try and be uh, terse on this, Michael. Tell me if I'm uh, if I'm taking too long on the answer. Um, is to say that um, I, I truly believe that let's just take integrated reporting. One of the key things it did was get back to basics. Again, fundamental principles, capital's in, stuff happens, value comes out or is destroyed, right? So what unites organizations is way, way, way bigger than what separates it. But we have had a tendency over the last few decades to, to, to get, keep ourselves really busy creating divides and silos between things rather than really focusing on the bit that unites us. So in writing 37,000, which was about all organizations, we had the same challenge with this. Uh, and we kept it in the room. So yes, purpose is a concept that is just as applicable to government, international governance, universities, businesses. It, it is a because it's fundamental. Um, well, Hugh Purser makes a comment along these lines as well. If the economy is purpose-driven, even if it is market-driven, and companies are becoming so, it seems vital that governments should be setting an example too, and that there's no mention of this language in the Tory leadership race at the moment. Uh, I'm not sure you have to comment on that, but but feel free. I, I think it's um, I think it's very interesting to see the language in the Tory, Tory leadership race because what it tells us is really why we're in this mess. And I'm not just saying that's about Tories; it could be about Labour, it could be the whole political spectrum as I see it at the moment. How narrow and short term are the issues that they are focused on? How are we really going to deal? And if for anyone who's looked at the science and knows where we are, I mean, this is a massive question. So um, I actually wrote a special issue um, which has 24 freely available papers, academic papers and from um, non-academics on repurposing universities for sustainable human progress. You can find it out there. People like politicians like Jane Davidson. We have people like Bob Costanza, who you may know from ecosystem assessments with papers in there. And we had ours on the path to purpose, taking this thinking and applying it to purpose-driven organizations. Um, and, 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 and honestly, you could take that same logic and apply it to anything. And we should be doing that for government. Because when I say that unsustainability is the biggest governance failure ever, ultimately, it, and we're seeing this happening in Sri Lanka, the ultimate governing body are citizens. So if we are not able to get the right people to govern, as in our governing body is the government, gov is, is, is you know the ones that we're putting there, um, is government, and if government are not doing their job, we really need to challenge that much more, albeit on our heads. And just to say what's on the screen now, if you want a, a deeper dive into everything I've presented, these two documents there give all of the evidence base. That's right, and uh, those those links are being put into the chat room now. Um, now, Sam Rex Edwards has a good question, almost kind of going the other direction. Do you think the shareholder model can, in fact, truly and genuinely embed an operationalized purpose? Uh, so, you well, know, we're saying it applies to all organizations, but now is it is it really the case or is it just a, a veneer that will get overwritten by the profit motive? I, I, I think the shareholder model has is, is effectively extinct in that it still exists, we can see it, but I don't think it has a logic that holds up against the issues that that has created even with investors who are now starting to step up i don't think i i, I think the pressures will be too big and ultimately investors will start to see command and control is the alternative if we don't embed and, and come alongside other stakeholders in 
driving purpose-driven organizations. I think that that is, that is happening fast. Just one little note to say, you could be a shareholder-oriented organization, and some people have made this point, um, the point that we should be focused on the well-being of shareholders. There's a whole paper on that rather than their financial interest. And this takes us to a really important point. So if your reason to exist was the well-being of your shareholders as your strategic contribution to long-term well-being for all people on the planet, and you could justify that, and then you strategized it, you'd come up with a very kind of different organization, but you would be shareholder focused and you would be purpose-driven. But it would lead, and this is another thing that's interesting, we think about the definition of material information, fiduciary duty, the doctrine of good faith. We put the word financial in there in order to say, well, it's about your financial decision. It's about the financial, you know, good. we just have to take that word out. And suddenly pe people are going, well, hang on a minute. You gave me information to tell me that I'm investing in order to get money for my retirement. You didn't tell me I wouldn't have a world to live in in my retirement that was worth living in. Uh, it's, I think it's about to happen or is happening. Well, I, I think Sam Rex Edwards is quite prescient and knew where this was heading because he, he continues with a few other questions which are very related. So does the definition of fiduciary duty need to change? Um, you've sort of answered which sorts of company won't be able to meet the definition of PDO, but then you kind of said actually under the current system, virtually none unless the system changes, if I read that correctly. Um, and he, he ends on a, an interesting question, uh, which I, I would ask you, what, what does all of this mean for the concept of growth? Growth of what is my always my question, because I think this is, again, we've got to get to fundamentals here. What do we, and that's the, the sort of the five whys, and you'll end up long-term well-being for all, and, and that's the, the test in the room. But, and that's why it's our meta purpose, because we say growth. What we mean is growth of financial income, and we mean growth of financial income because of everything that I mentioned at the beginning about our assumptions about how we create well-being for everyone in the long term. And we have to seriously, seriously rethink. And I think that's the biggest challenge on, on, uh, that we have now. How do we collectively excavate our worldviews to stop basically tactically operating within a narrow view, including government doing this, and see the wood for the trees? Because if we don't, it will be too late for us to have that option. Yeah. Well, there's definitely some interesting problems here, uh, largely, in fact, I would argue to do with framing. So if you believe that the entire planet is a market, then you, you get into things like trying to value biodiversity and some other things where we've seen the absurdity of, of that paradigm stretch too far. Uh, and yet we know that the market paradigm is good and works in certain areas. It just doesn't work everywhere. It's there to solve certain types of problems. Um, I found it very interesting on Monday night, I was uh, at the Institute for Government and one of the crit crit criticisms there was about uh, government statistics. But government statistics, oddly, tend to take a market paradigm. So they look at expenditure and then they divide the expenditure uh, and they calculate how many, how much it costs to run a bed or a school or teach a child or house a prisoner or whatever the heck is going on. They're trying to use a market type approach. But in a market type approach, the numbers that result are actually microtransactions. These are just large annual budgets divided by a denominator. It's a it's a very, very different way of looking at the things and this is the framing problem here. Yeah, exactly. And I, I truly think that, you know, what we've essentially done is reduce the complexity of the world to something very simplistic, because as humans, we want to do that. That's what we do. We're, you know, we're efficiency seeking things. And whilst we thought we could get away with it, that was fine. But what we've done is created way more complexity that we've 
stuffed behind a cupboard door, it's now coming out and we're going, oh, right, well, we'll let climate change out, right? Okay, now we'll let biodiversity, well, no, we can't let biodiversity out. That's too complicated. It doesn't fit our models, right? And, and ultimately, it's not going to matter what we want to, the complexity is just going to hit us. So well, um, I think we also got another problem, which is we, we have a currency. Uh, well, we have many currencies, but you know we have the currencies of money or fiat currencies, and then we try and layer these other layers on, and ultimately people go, well, how much how much is biodiversity worth against my profit? Um, which which is a fair question. You're measuring me on something, and you're now giving me other metrics, and these metrics compete. They are in conflict, and I need to make decisions. And a lot of what you're yeah. talking about. And I, and I like a lot of this is is going back to almost the ethical issues of principalism, which is we found this when we had deontological type ethics, where people are trying to come up with logical rules for deciding, you know, whether or not the trolley should be moved to kill somebody or not. Um, the truth was you couldn't do it, and so principalism in healthcare, you know, began to recognize four principles, and then said none of these are paramount. You kind of have to make up your mind as a human being. Um, and actually. In the standard, we have virtue ethics built into that for that reason, because you, you know, and if we think about John Kay, he was, I was on the GNDI Global Conference panel yesterday, and John Kay was just before me, and he talks about radical uncertainty. So it is really recognizing that the constraints of the system that we've built and yeah. recognizing we're not going to have to just get rid of a few. We really, we really need to do some blank sheet thinking, and that's why we need business and why business is stepping into the plate. I think our ability to solve this depends almost entirely on business's ability to recognize its role in leading out of this issue. It's starting to, but it needs to be much, much faster. Yeah, well, it's kind of why I like your very first point that the firm outcomes you get depend on the decisions you make. And so it's about it's about the decision framework, and then the tools of the market are there to make some decisions or the tools of command and control or the tools of taxation or what have you. Uh, we're running out of time, but just a couple of quick points here, if I might. I mean, a lot of what you talk about is almost quasi-religious. Uh, it doesn't mean it is religious, but it's got that, no, it's got that feel to it. You know, you've got to think about the planet, the long term, and, and make this. Um, Gabby uh, Glazner Cipollini uh, wants to know, how do we define purposeful across different cultures and geographies? You know, are, are international standards actually possible? Ah, so yeah, this is a great, I, I would say not religious, I'd say human um, in the spiritual sense of it, sense of it. And I say that because I think religion's co-opted human spirituality, religion. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's true because it gets back to the fundamentals. Um, and because it's fundamentals, and we had this discussion in ISO 37000, so you can go to sort of, you know, fundamental subjectivism, which is, well, it's whatever anyone feels and we all have our different views. And that's true. And again, while we've had the luxury of not having these hard you know, system issues, we might have been able to pretend that that's the case. When you have hard choices, you have to say what really matters. And there are some fundamentals. So in ISO 37000, there's the definition from ISO 26000 about international norms. And we don't have to look further than our international norms to know what we're really as humanity looking for at that top level strategy. But I would argue that that long-term well-being for all people and planet fits fundamentally as the ultimate why. I don't think you get much further beyond that. You might get slight variations, but as a norm, as a general consensus, and that's the place where we can always move up to, to unite globally, I would say. And um, we'll squeeze a final question in from Arthur Palmer. Uh, he wonders how you feel about uh, CICs, community interest companies. Is that the direction we need to take to tackle shareholder profit mentalities? Uh, 
no i don't think so i think we don't need alternative models all of these are, are, are ways of trying to break through the system as is what's called dual purpose but let's call it dual objective like you know benefit corporation and the society of mission you know they, they just create a hybrid situation which is complex it's because we're trying to negotiate our way out of this but that's not nice for anyone i think we just need to again say let's let's think if this is the the kind of organization the kind of market system we want now let's rethink our fundamental uh, laws and legislations around uh, corporate governance and, and company law. Wonderful. Well, we, we've come to the end, sadly. Um, it's a big, tough subject, and the, the purpose of this webinar is not to teach you all about it or anything like that, but to uh, make you aware of what's happening. Um, I can, if, uh, if I may, uh, do three things. One is to thank our sponsors. I can't imagine that any of them would have a problem realizing that this whole surround to why we have technology, economics, and finance, and market systems isn't important in the discussion that, frankly, will never end uh, and does have some paradoxes, or if not paradoxes within it, certainly some complications. Um, I'd like to secondly thank the audience. You've been great today. You've rolled with a tough, I said to Victoria in the beginning, this is a little abstract, um, but I think you, you got it. And Victoria, I'd like to thank you. My commentary would be that it's not easy. You're, you're, those who are against Friedman in many ways, I don't think realize what Milton had done, which was to really define one point. And, I, and his point followed logically. And many of the things that have railed about him have sort of flailed without necessarily providing any kind of structured alternative, which makes him even more frustrated. But what you've tried to do is to put a standard down for spiritual companies in a way. Uh, and that's not easy. And you've done a, a great job at, at trying to lay that out. Uh, and I think as a first pass, it, it has a lot to commend it. And it's something that we should all be discussing. So I'd like to thank you very much for taking time today. Thank you very much. And maybe I could just add one little bit there is that whilst I think the spirituality is important if we release humanity into this role and its capacity, I would say the key point is this was always supposed to be fundamentally economics 101 the goal of the economy so this is actually about getting an economy that works and that isn't fundamentally ungoverned ungovernable and taking us down a very bad route so this is good economics i would say an excellent closing point thank you very much thank you